As you all know, uh, Ireland has been beset by housing problems in multiple ways. Um, I suppose in in this, in the last uh, 30, 40 years, um, that's typified in, in lack of supply of public housing, housing built in the wrong place, poor planning, devastatingly ugly architecture, bad design, and now a dysfunction built on land speculation that sees investment funds building the wrong things, maintaining high rents that are placing an incredible amount of stress on people, forcing people back into their childhood bedrooms or to emigrate to cities where value for money uh, and and where you can live <clears throat> is preferable to making a life in place to call home. You know, cheap cities like London and New York, <laughs> where, where rents seem to be more affordable uh, than Irish cities. But within that, there's also the defective houses and the defective developments that cause people's dreams to sometimes literally collapse around them. In his latest book, Defects, Living with the Legacy of the of the Celtic Tiger, Sinn Féin TD Ono Bryn, whose previous book, Home, Why Public Housing is the Answer, gave a tremendous amount of heft to Bryn's contributions on the public uh, on the housing crisis in the public sphere. Now He's now turning his eyes to the cracks and crumbles um, in our housing stock, as it is called. Uh, the book opens with a personal tragedy that emerged from the crisis at Priory Hall in Dublin, a development that had significant fire safety defects which had not been addressed by the developer. Families became homeless, entering that euphemism we call emergency accommodation. Um, and defects, like, the, the book kind of looks at uh, the broader issue of shoddy housing by detailing these personal stories of those who've suffered as a result, like Stephanie Meehan and Fiacre Daly, um, uh, the stories at the outset there, as I mentioned. At one point, O'Brien, early on, O'Brien makes this literal uh, visible connection between these developments, um, as Belmain is visible from the top balconies of Priory Hall. There's also a helpful through line on the legislative context of building. Um, and no doubt this book will bring O'Brien's insights regarding housing to the fore again, as they were during the 2020 general election. Owen, thanks a million for, for coming on and talking to us about this. No problem. Thanks for having me, Una. Now, uh, to say this book is timely would be an understatement. When did you first start writing it and why? Well, I suppose my, my interest in defective building and, and the broader issue of building control dates back to, to well before I was a TD. Uh, I was involved with residents in a number of developments in Lucan um, and in Clondalkin uh, at an earlier stage. Thankfully, uh, they were substantively uh, uh, resolved, but, but I'd always kind of had a notion in my head that if I was ever elected to the Dáil, I'd like to use the platform that that would give to try and raise these issues uh, so that anybody else who's affected by them or anybody who could be potentially affected by them into the future uh, uh, could be better protected. Back in 2017, after I'd been elected to the Dáil, I'd asked the Oireachtas Housing Committee if I could author a report on, on defects and consumer protection. The committee agreed. We had a series of hearings. We brought in a whole series of experts. We listened to people living with defects, uh, as well as people involved in the building industry. Uh, and we produced a report called Safest Houses in, in 2018 uh, that got the unanimous support of the committee uh, and has been, I suppose, one of the, 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 the kind of standard bearers for, first of all, 100% redress for the people affected by these defects, but also for greater reform. That then kind of worked its way into the programme for government. And around that time, because we were beginning to see there were more and more developments with defects emerging, 
I thought it was really important to, to do a book that did a couple of things. The first is, as you say, tell the human story. So half of the book is really based around detailed interviews with six families, uh, four in Dublin, one in Donegal, uh, and one in uh, uh, County Clare, just on, on you know, that journey from buying your first home, the incredible sense of security and, and stability that that gives you, uh, the shock of then discovering that you have significant defects, uh, uh, the the anger at realizing uh, that the developer gets to walk away or the builder gets to walk away scot-free and then the absolute frustration that the state just has washed its hands of it and that's really a, a common thread that runs through every one of the, the families I've interviewed but I also wanted to do something different because we know the names of all the developers all of that has been well documented by some really really great radio and, and newspaper journalists and I credit all of them in the book but the political story of how we ended up with such a weak self-certification regime has never been told. So there's quite a lot in the book, and I suppose it's the, the, the TD in me is interested to know how, how we ended up with this system. But the Dáil debates uh, uh, from the 1960s right through to the 1990s, and it took us that long to get a statewide set of regulations and enforcement uh, onto the statute books. The debates are, are, are both fascinating and at times deeply disturbing. So I suppose I wanted to tell that story. And mm. then the final bit of the book, of course, and it's quite a substantive section, is what do we need to do? How, do? how do we further reform the system? First of all, to ensure that those people who are living in defective homes, whether you're a homeowner in Mayo or Donegal or the Western Seaboard, and literally, as you said, the home is crumbling around you, or the thousands, if not tens of thousands of apartment to duplex owners right across the state living in far defective uh, homes, that they get full redress. But also what other reforms we need to put in place to ensure as we're about to enter into another building boom, uh, and many of us hope to see very substantial increases in building into the future, and that we have a proper regulatory regime to ensure that everything is built to the standards it should be, and whether people rent a home from a private landlord or, or, or their social renters, or people buy a home, they are living in a home that is safe, that is secure, and that doesn't have defects. And I suppose, you know, like all of the work that I, 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 I do, there's a campaigning element of this to try and secure further reform. And, and that's the way the book ends. Mm. Let's go back um, to some of the specific kind of um, developments or incidents, I think especially for our uh, younger listeners who probably weren't um, attuned to or even maybe even alive uh, with regards to when the frantic nature of building um, throughout the Celtic Tiger began to reveal these massive corners that were being cut. You mentioned self-certification there um, in, and, and all of these kind of things that were obviously completely uh, leveraged in, in, in the wrong way in terms of um, developers and builders and so on, signing off um, on their own developments. Um, you know, the case of like, I'm grand, so this is grand. But the specific developments, when did you first hear what was going on at Priory Hall, for example, and what was going on at Priory Hall? Sure. So I, I, I suppose I, I returned to Dublin in uh, 2006. I was 11 years in Belfast and five years in London before that. Uh, and I was living out in, in Dunleary uh, and Monkstown for a period of time. So I think Priory Hall really kind of came to the fore in terms of the news coverage about 2011. Mm -hmm. Actually, the story goes right back to 2006, um, although that's something that many of us have only discovered subsequently. So for me, by 2010, I was living in Clondalkin and, and Tom McFeely, uh, the former IRA political prisoner and, and hunger striker from the 
1980 hunger strike, who subsequently became a rogue uh, a developer, he actually had a very large development in my own constituency, Aris Nekluina, um, and that had many of the same defects that Priory Hall had. Uh, and I was working with a few residents in there because there had been inspection by the Dunfarbrigade, Brigade uh, and Tom McFeely and his company Coalport had been hit with a, a notice uh, to remediate the building or they'd have to evacuate. And I think there's 195 apartments in it. Um, it that work was done um, and that was the work that effectively bankrupted Tom McFeely. But at the same time as all of this, of course, uh, at Priory Hall uh, uh, was underway. And again, for people who, who weren't around or who don't remember, um, Priory Hall was, you know, it's a mid-rise high-density development. It was uh, part of that new kind of suburb of, of North County Dublin. Belmain is beside it. Clare Hall had pre-existed it. Um, and and when, you, when you, I suppose, listen to the words of Stephanie Meehan, uh, who's the... the, the uh, woman I interviewed who was a resident there, one of the first people to move in, anything that could have been done wrong was done wrong. There were no fire escapes. Uh, there were no adequate uh, fire stopping. Uh, there was all sorts of aspects of the construction that were done badly. In fact, at one point she had talked to one of the construction workers and he had said pretty much every corner that could have been cut was cut. Uh, what, what she didn't know at the time was in fact back uh, as far as 2006, uh, uh, the Health and Safety Authority and Dublin City Council had to go out to the site because a woman was almost killed in her car when mesh unprotected fell off the building and literally almost crushed her in her own vehicle. There had been repeated inspections and demands for McFeely to, um, to rectify bad building practices. And around 2009, Dublin City Council very quietly evacuated its own social housing tenants. Although, interestingly, according to Stephanie, they never told the private homeowners they only uh, uh, discovered this extent of the defects when there was a court order evacuation in 2011. Um, and of course, that was just the beginning of, of an appalling story. Uh, two years, uh, uh, those families um, had to move around. Uh, they were in temporary accommodation and then they were given kind of semi-permanent accommodation uh, often in houses that NAM owned in neighbouring uh, 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 Belmain. Um, and all during this time, they kept urging uh, uh, the Minister for uh, Environment with responsibility for these issues, Phil Hogan, to meet them. Um, they knew he couldn't solve their problem, but they just thought as the most senior public official in the state, he should meet them and engage. He wouldn't meet. Uh, there was repeated demands from opposition politicians on the floor of the Dáil for him to meet. He wouldn't meet. He said it wasn't his statutory responsibility. And what happened then in 2013 was uh, Stephanie's partner, Fiacra Daly, a, a very, very hardworking family man, uh, took his own life. Uh, uh, he took his own life under the enormous stress of one living with this appalling tragedy. But also the way Stephanie describes it is, here's just a regular working guy who wants to provide for his family. He wants his kids to have a safe home. Uh, and they're living with not just the tragedy and trauma of being displaced from that home, but they have the constant harassment of the mortgage lender uh, wanting to fill out uh, statements uh, and, and uh, uh, provide new information. Uh, and just one night, uh, uh, he took his own life. And following that, Stephanie wrote this incredibly powerful letter to Enda Kenny, the Taoiseach. She'd written to him many times before, never really got a reply. And that letter was then published. And that had such a powerful emotional impact, particularly on the wider public when it was published, that it essentially embarrassed uh, the government uh, to sit down and meet with the families for the first time. And in a matter of weeks, literally a matter of weeks, a deal was hammered out. A deal that allowed those families who bought the properties to move on without any debt for the uh, uh, landlords who own properties to have their properties remediated at no cost to themselves. 
um, and to have the social houses addressed. And, you know, when you read that interview that I did with Stephanie um, um, on Unnecessary Death is what I call that opening section of the book, what you realise very clearly is if the government had intervened earlier, if they had just met with the residents after three months or six months or 12 months, I'm absolutely convinced Fiacre Daly wouldn't be dead. Um, and I know that sounds like a, a very dramatic thing to say, uh, but but if they had intervened earlier to resolve the problems in the way they subsequently did, then not only would Stephanie and others not have lost their homes, bad and all as that was, but Stephanie and her two young children wouldn't have lost their father uh, and she wouldn't have lost her partner. And I think that really speaks to how serious this issue is. Like, look at the families in Donegal and Mayo at the minute, you know, Working families or families that are now on disability allowance or job seekers because of COVID and the recession. And when we say crumbling, I mean, literally those houses are crumbling around them. Uh, and therefore, well, ultimately, uh, the developers and builders should be covering the cost of this. The state can't walk away. The state can't say nothing to do with us. They designed the building control system, the self-certification system that allowed this to happen. And therefore, they have a role to play in ensuring not only 100% redress for all of those families affected by defects, wherever in the country they are, but we put in place the best possible building control regime into the future so that all future buildings are built to the right standards. Mm. So there's like, let's talk, there's so many, I suppose, <laughs> so much building in, in Ireland is, I shouldn't laugh, but like it's so frustratingly um, poor that there is actually a menu of defects to choose from, you know, to highlight. And and you mentioned, part, like we're talking about Priory Hall, fire safety and so on. Um, and the MICA scandal in Donegal and other in, in Sligo, in Mayo, um, and Pyrite also in, in Leinster. What I want to know, like in terms of like what you know about, so I've talked to an awful lot of people in Donegal um, about the housing situation there. Um, but what, it's kind of like one of these things of like, how do, the, how do these things happen? Um, but I, I kind of want to know that because we can talk about the developers of the buildings, um, uh, material suppliers and, how, and what they may or may not get away with in a second. But like, have you identified any kind of unifying theme that crosses over the diverse array of defective builds and defective developments. Absolutely. I mean, let me say first of all, the, the, the vast majority of of building work that takes place in this state is of a really high quality, and I'm I'm absolutely confident of that. I spent a lot of time on building sites in my current and previous role. I talked to lots of builders, lots of architects, lots of developers, both public and private. We build really, really good quality homes and apartments to a very, very high standard. And in fact, some of the more recent local authority and AHB uh, social housing projects are, are really, really incredible in terms of uh, energy efficiency standards and quality of build and materials, et cetera. So it's, it's really important to set that, uh, 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 put that on the agenda. The central problem, however, is, is that um, other jurisdictions have a very straightforward system where when you're producing a product, if you're quarrying material and making block, or if you're building something, then there's an independent inspection regime. There is a state agency, whether it's a local authority or some other body, who have the job to independently inspect 
and then certify that the material coming out of the quarry to go in the foundations, the block that has been produced to build the houses or, or apartments, and the process of building all of those individuals going in and out of the site, that, that, that is done in accordance with the regulations. Um, our problem here in, our, in Ireland is we don't have that. Uh, we do have it in the north of Ireland, but we don't have it in the south. And the reason is very straightforward. Um, uh, when government decided in the 1970s uh, uh, to put in place what we call a building control regime, it met with enormous resistance from industry. So the, the story goes something like this. Back in the 1960s, huge numbers of people lived in dangerous buildings. They were called tenements and they had a tendency to collapse. 1962, 63, or the collapse of the tenement in Fenian Street, just around the corner from the doll where I'm sitting now, uh, and a number of children were killed. And at the time, there was a piece of legislation going through the doll uh, called the Local Government Planning and Development uh, uh, Bill, um, which included a very small provision at the end of it uh, to empower the Minister for Local Government, it was called then, to put in place universal, a, univer a un uniform set of standards and an enforcement regime for new buildings. Nothing happened until the mid-1970s. Government drafted a, a set of regulations in 1976 for a fully independent local authority-led inspection regime. Very, very good idea. Both the Construction Industry Federation and the uh, representative body representing architects, surveyors, and engineers trashed the recommendations. Uh, uh, they just said that these would be too expensive, they would be too bureaucratic, the local authorities didn't have the staff, and they really kind of waged a campaign against it. Following the year 1977, the Law Reform Commission um, uh, produced a very important report First of all, identifying the defects were a problem back then. So it's not just a, a, a phenomenon of the Celtic Tiger. And what the Law Reform Commission recommended to government was that there should be a legal obligation on anybody building anything to build it properly. It's a pretty kind of basic proposition. Their report was also trashed uh, uh, by uh, industry and other bodies. Uh, and there it sat. Government caved in to the power of, of the construction industry professionals and their lobbies. Uh, 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 and, and they sat on their hands. What changed all of that was the Stardust Fire uh, in Artane in 1981. 48 young people tragically lost their lives, as, as your listeners will know, particularly because of the really great work of, of the journal.ie and their really incredible podcast series, which I'd urge uh, people to listen to. And in the aftermath of that tragedy, uh, uh, government, obviously stung by the scale of the event, uh, commissioned the Justice King to do a tribunal of inquiry. Now, that Tribunal of Inquiry report has been widely criticised, particularly by the families, uh, and rightly so, the families and survivors. But there's a really important section of that report on the failure of the Department of Environment in the 1970s to implement that uh, building control regime that the department had developed. In fact, Justice Keane, at one point, goes as far as to say if the 1976 fire safety regulations had been in place at the time of the Stardust and enforced, that fire would not have been as severe as it was. And he goes on to make a series of recommendations for the speedy implementation of it. At the time, Dick Spring uh, was the Taunished and Minister for Environment, and he brings this really detailed memo to Cabinet, basically rejecting Keane's findings with respect to building control, fire safety, and the Department of Environment, and instead sets out the government's position, which reads almost identical to industry's position uh, as stated in the 1970s, that it would be too expensive and cumbersome uh, to have an independent local authority-led inspection regime, uh, that local authorities didn't have the staff and it would be too expensive for government to put them in there. And Dick Spring then, and the Cabinet's acceptance of that memo in the Fine Gael Labour government, 
set and train a piece of legislation called the Building Control Bill, 1984, which took from 84 to 1990 to pass and then two more years before it was enacted. And that put in place the self-certification system, uh, both for products and for construction that we had during the Celtic Tiger. And the rule is very simple. And both the Fianna Fáil and the Fine Gael ministers and minister of state who stewarded this legislation through made it very clear there was no legal obligation on local authorities to inspect. They could if they wanted to, and they had some enforcement powers, but it was completely discretionary. There was no liability on the state to ensure uh, that builders uh, 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 and uh, architects did their jobs properly. All of that fell back on the developer. And there's this one wonderful exchange. In 1989, I think it was, or maybe 1990, Eamon Gilmore is the then Workers' Party opposition environment spokesperson. The Workers' Party were steadfast in their opposition to what they called the privatization of building control. And he says, if this bill passes, a rogue builder and a rogue architect can build a defective building. And if I buy that building, I have no comeback. Porig Flynn, of course, as we know, uh, a very controversial and subsequently proved to be corrupt uh, Fianna Fáil politician was the Minister for Environment at the time. And he says, back to Eamon Gilmore, he says, uh, I don't understand Deputy Gilmore's obsession with rogue builders. I've never met one. Builders trade on their reputation. And if they build defective buildings, they won't be commissioned to build buildings in the future. What happens? Legislation is passed. Regulations come into effect 92. In the subsequent years, the country comes out of recession. And hundreds of thousands of homes are built. And unfortunately, particularly for the people who are today living in those homes, Eamon Gilmore and his predecessor, Punchiester Rosser, who was also very vocal on this, were proved right. Thousands of defective homes were built uh, because there was no independent inspection. And as a result of that, the people who live in them, exactly as Eamon Gilmore has said, have no comeback. As a small aside, um, the situation for building materials is even worse. Mm. Um, because again, there's no independent inspection regime required. Local authorities can inspect if they have the time and the staff. But whereas with respect to the building, the process of building, reforms were subsequently introduced uh, in 2014, 2015 and 16 on the back of Pyrite and Priory Hall, nothing has changed with respect to quarries and, and the production, for example, of block uh, as we've seen, uh, uh, is having such a devastating impact in Mayo, Donegal, Sligo, Limerick, and, and, and Clare. So, in fact, the situation for the materials is just as bad today as it was when the first of those Cassidy's blocks uh, was, was produced and sold uh, to home uh, owners and home builders in Donegal, that we're now seeing all of those devastating images of, of buildings literally crumbling around. So, the central theme we do not have an independent inspection regime for the production of building materials or for the building process itself. And therefore, enforcement of the regulations and standards that are in place is very, very weak. And if you happen to be one of the people who lives in one of those defective homes, your current recourse is only through the courts. Uh, and having spoken to many legal experts and specialists in this area, if you're a defective homeowner who wants to try and get redressed through the courts, you need very, very deep pockets and you need a taste for gambling because to date, as far as I understand it, not a single court case for defective building or defective materials has been won by anybody. And that's why we need not only a redress scheme with 100% redress, uh, but the kind of reforms that I set out in the final chapters of the book. Mm. You mentioned there that, um, you know, things things happen um, uh, that lead government positions to be identical to industry positions and obviously 
when you're talking about something, uh, an industry where, I mean, I kind of disagree with what you said at the top that like, I know Ireland builds like high quality things all over the place in terms of material, but I don't think Ireland builds high quality apartments. <laughs> like, I mean, there was high quality social housing, but there, I, don't, I, I don't believe that that is, is something that could be, could be said. I think Ireland builds very, um, really, really bad apartments with, you know, very, very simple things that aren't done, for example, like storage and stuff like that. But we can get back to that in a second. But when you say, you know, government position reads identical to industry position and and, and that's, you know, obviously a massive alarm bell, um, especially when people are just expected to self-police and you're relying on people's, you know, intrinsic good nature that nothing will go wrong. Yet we're now in a situation um, where the, some of the multiple interventions that have been made that have um, worsened the the rental crisis at the very least um, contain the positions of industry within those bills, um, sometimes identical. Killian Wood's done a lot of work on this in terms of the investment funds and so on. So with regards to the proximity between industry um, and their lobbyists and government and the fact that that those um, desires from industry um, that may not actually serve people can end up on occasion almost word for word in legislation. Clearly nothing has changed in the political sphere when it comes to Fianna Fáil's interactions with industry. Now, the effects may not be as um, immediately or obviously devastating in terms of, you know, the shoddiness of bills, but the proximity um, and the lack of, of, I don't know, so there's just a kind of like gullibility, like sometimes it's like, is it gullibility or is it corruption? Like, but that, that proximity has remained. There's a, a wonderful moment in the early stage debate around 1984 of the Bill of Control Bill, which, which just encapsulates this. Um, so uh, Fergus O'Brien is the Minister of State, uh, Fine Gael Jr. Minister, who's introducing the legislation, albeit the legislation uh, has been approved at Cabinet by the, his line minister, which of course was Dick Spring of the Labour Party as the Minister for Environment. And Fergus O'Brien outlines what's in the legislation and explains the, the reason for such a long delay from when this could have been done back in the 60s and the 1970s to where we were. Bobby Malloy was the then Fianna Fáil TD for Galway, subsequently went on to, to be in the Progressive Democrats. And when he gets up to speak, he rails against this legislation, right? He said, it's absolutely terrible. Uh, it's bad for industry. It'll slow down the delivery of much needed homes. It'll increase the price, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? Think, think, things we hear all of the time from industry lobbyists today. In response... Uh, Minister of State Fergus O'Brien says, no, no, no. Uh, what's in this bill is what industry wanted. And we know that because we asked them. The reason why this is self-certification and not independent local authority led inspection is because that's what industry asked us to do. I'm paraphrasing, but almost uh, word uh, uh, for word. And as it was then, so it continues. Um, so I, I don't disagree with you at all that we have a lot of poor building. Uh, I also don't disagree with you that some of the standards, particularly with respect to apartments, are also very poor. I mean, the, the, the issue of, of the build to rent design standards, that's not an issue of building quality, right? Those buildings could be built to a very high standard in terms of the, the materials and the finish. But Owen Murphy, when he introduced those uh, uh, mandatory ministerial guidelines and design standards, created this two-tier regime where people who rent uh, and live in build to rent apartments uh, uh, 
get less storage space, less dual aspect, uh, uh, et cetera. And of course, that's appalling. My point is a different one, though, which is is we build lots of good stuff. There are lots of good apartments that were in the 70s and 80s, albeit built in small numbers. But the point you're making is a really good one, which is all of this comes back to regulation. So, for example, if we want people to be able to rent in good quality affordable homes in our city centre or buy good quality affordable homes in the city centre, then we have to regulate for that. There has to be a regulatory regime, and that goes from your design standards. It goes from your planning code. But crucially, it goes to your building control, what materials are used, how are they used on site, who is overseeing that that has been done properly. And I suppose that's that's the scandal. But again, look at the strategic housing developments. Right? There's a wonderful research paper uh, and the name of the two academics, one from Dublin, one from Belfast, escaped me. But uh, after the strategic housing development legislation was passed uh, and, uh, and I was intimately involved in opposing that as a member of the Oireachtas Housing Committee, um, the, the, these two academics went and uh, anonymously interviewed 40 participants in the, the framing and passage of that legislation, including industry, civil servants, uh, and politicians on both government and opposition side. And I was one of the people interviewed. And the research is dynamite because it shows explicitly that uh, the, the construction lobby arm and the institutional investor lobby arm of IBEC uh, Irish institutional property headed by David Duffy uh, uh, set about a task. They wanted uh, uh, the um, uh, different standards that exist in different local authority county development plans, such as the superior design standards that good planners and good politicians in Dublin City Council had insisted on putting in their previous county development plan for architects. They wanted rid of those. And the only way to get rid of those it was uh, to have a streamlined process bypassing local authorities directly into on board Planola uh, for large residential developments. Of course, they couldn't say that's what they wanted. So they came up with this counter narrative, which was the planning process is too slow. It's slowing down the delivery of much needed homes. We're in the middle of a housing crisis. We need something to speed it up. That is the origin of the SHD legislation. And the two, two academics Again, his names, apologies, they escape me, but anybody interested will find it on Google easily enough. Um, they then trace the campaign, both in the media and in lobbying, that uh, 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 the lobbyists engaged it. That then filtered through the civil servants and, and government politicians, and they brought forward this legislation. And at the time, a number of us in the opposition, uh, uh, myself included, argued that this was not the right thing to do. There was a better way of doing it that wouldn't have bypassed the local authorities and the democratically agreed county development plans, would have given uh, residents and other third parties an opportunity not only to input into the planning at the local authority stage, but the appeal at the board panel stage, and you can shorten the whole process. So if speed, efficiency is what you wanted, we, we gave a proposal that could do that without undermining the integrity of the planning process and the right of people to participate in the built environment in which they live. That was rejected by government at the time. We all know both because of the really good work uh, of Killian Woods, that very large numbers of, of SHD applications were never built. Uh, they didn't fast track the delivery of homes. But we also know that latterly, uh, they've ended up uh, with a dramatic increase in uh, judicial reviews, both by local authorities and by residents uh, because of the inadequacy of the plan. And what is government now doing? Dar O'Brien has said, despite the fact that his party abstained on the SHD legislation and facilitated its passage, albeit led by Fine Gael, uh, when we urged them to vote against it, Dar O'Brien is now proposing to introduce the very thing we called for back in 2017, 2018, 
have a statutory timeline for pre-planning, statutory timeline for additional information requests by the local authority, statutory timeline from board penal appeals, but return the primary decision-making to the local authority um, um, because that's a much better process. Unfortunately, Dar O'Brien, despite rhetorically opposing the substandard design standards introduced by Owen Murphy and the controversial uh, 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 mandatory ministerial guidelines around uh, building heights, they're still on the statute. Mm. So that is still going to create difficulties. So you're still going to get uh, this uh, two-tier quality standards for apartments. If you own your own apartment in the city centre, if you're rich enough to be able to afford four or five or 600,000 euros for one, you'll get better dual aspect, better storage uh, and more space inside. But if you're a renter, uh, uh, you will be consigned to the inferior design standards. So there's still a a piece of work to be done around that. And of course, uh, as I end the book, um, there are a number of cases that I've become aware of where post-2014, so after the reforms introduced by Phil Hogan, we're still seeing uh, uh, defective buildings, either mm-hmm. by rogue developers, as has been widely reported, Cavi's uh, uh, refurbishment of the old Ben, Do- ben Dunn gym in Clondalkin uh, into apartments in breach of every planning and building control regulation that's there, but also other developments, some are houses, some are apartments, some are public uh, or, or private commercial buildings where there are genuine concerns around adequate fire stopping, fire safety, fire insulation, et cetera. And again, no independent inspection regimes to deal with, with all of that. Uh, so while there have been some improvements, at least on the building process side since 2014, there is some evidence to suggest that that hasn't done the job that's required, which is why further reforms are needed. Mm. I want to ask you a couple more questions, uh, quick questions if you have time. Um Although I, I actually, you know, I know you touched on there about, about um, more power being given to local governments or, or, or that being put, brought back to local authorities. And, you know, I personally agree that, there, you know, local authorities should have much more power and input in terms of like building, building public housing. Um, but at the same time, you know, unless there is like massive um, local government reform, you know, like to be quite honest, the thought of Dublin City Council as they are now being in charge of build like mass building chills me to the bone. You know, these this is the same um, local authority that couldn't even put, you know, a ben- benches around the place. So anyway, that's a total aside. Um, and obviously that, you know, is predicated on things just being better and there being people of, you know, high caliber and and with really good ideas to to do that. So we'll see what happens there. But uh how did you feel about Owen Murphy riding off into the sunset? Just very briefly before I answer that, though, just on local government. Um, and, and look, I suppose I see uh, local government at a level that many people in the public domain don't see because not only do I engage with my own local authority, but I engage with a lot of public sector officials and local authorities. There are huge numbers of really, really good public servants battling away every day inside our local authorities, including in Dublin City Council, trying to do right by our cities and towns and rural areas and the people who live in them. And in fact, in building control, it's one of those areas where we have some of the best people. Um, Very often the problem isn't the individuals, although there are issues around individuals uh, for sure. The entire system is just dysfunctional. So Mm. until, for example, we have local authorities with proper devolved executive powers, directly elected mayors, cabinet style government, as we have in major European cities, uh, uh, where the policy decisions of our politicians and the finance raising decisions of those same politicians are fully accountable to the public this dysfunctional system is going to go round and round and round. Um, And therefore, you're absolutely right, reform is key. 
But while we're waiting for and campaigning for that reform, there are lots of good things that have been done now, which we need to support. And a lot of the information I have in this book comes from those good people uh, who talk to me in the strictest Fair. of confidence to try and raise those concerns. Look, I, I, with respect to, to Owen Murphy, I, I've always taken the view that I'm not in politics to personalize anything. Um, uh, Owen and I uh, probably had an unusual relationship because as the effectively the lead opposition spokesperson, because Fianna Fáil were sitting on the fence during confidence and supply, my job was to track every single thing that he did. It's almost like being a, a camogie player or a Gaelic football player. You know, you develop an unhealthy interest in the movements of, of, of your, your opposing player. Um, and, and my criticism of Owen is that he had the wrong policies uh, and he was listening to the wrong people. Um, mm. uh, I suppose... The difficulty is the consequence of that is enormous hardship for so many people. All those families who were made homeless under his uh, uh, period as minister, all those children who spent long periods of time in emergency accommodation, uh, all of those families, for example, with defects. And over and over again, he got up on the floor of the door and said, this is not the responsibility of government. This is a private matter between the sellers and purchasers of homes. All of those people suffered because of the policy decisions that he and his colleagues actively and tacitly supported by Fianna Fáil during that time were responsible for. So I suppose for me, when I'm asked that question, the, the thing I'm thinking about is all of those people that get left behind uh, and all of those people who continue to have acute housing needs or suffering the experience of, of what went. Uh, and therefore, I suppose for me, that's why I, I take up projects like writing this book or why if I ever do get the opportunity to be a minister for housing, there's no point me talking a good game now. If I'm ever in that office in the customs house, then we need to see such a profound paradigmatic shift in how we think about, fund and organise our housing and the surrounding public infrastructure. That's really where my focus is. So, you know, look, politicians, particularly ex-ministers, they can swan off to whatever they want to do afterwards. They get generous pensions and, and all the rest of it. But they leave behind a trail of devastation. Phil Hogan yeah. did it. Alan Kelly did it. Uh, Simon Coveney did it, uh, uh, Owen Murphy did it, and the jury is out for the moment on what would be Darrell O'Brien's legacy. Uh, but for me, I suppose the bigger issue is not what I think of Owen Murphy, but but am I getting myself ready for for the possibility that I'm, if I'm ever in that position, can I make sure I do a damn better job than all of the predecessors? Mm. I suppose the difference between, you know, I've always found like the difference between how you talk about this stuff and how Owen Murphy or Coveney or Dara or whoever talks about it is that it does seem to be what you're getting at is like systemic change rather than a, pol a suite of policies or whatever. Um, I want to talk about whether it would be possible in housing to have a beauty clause uh, with regards to new developments. I note that your Zoom background is the uh, Corbusier's, uh, one of his public housing designs, um, uh, Unité de Habation. Is that what it's, uh, was that what his modernist that's, design that, that's was? That's about as good as a pronunciation as I would have managed. <laughs> um, I live, I am a gentrifier. Uh, I came from the suburbs of South County Dublin and I live in a cottage in Stony Batter. Um, and uh, I'd like so many people, uh, middle class, the, the children of the middle class suburbs uh, moved into ex-public housing. Um, and moved into houses that were smaller than the ones that grew up in. That's like a happening vast wades all over the city and has been for about 20 years or so. Uh, unique generational shift. Yet I, I, I live beside uh, the O'Devany Garden site, which I um, am 
uh, obsessed with all of the um, jigs and the reels of that over the years. And when the first phase of it, um, which is a uh, public housing, even though um, the council and and uh, Owen Murphy, I think, and Pascal as well, who's a local politician here, uh, said that there would there would never be um, single blocks of of public housing that they would be peppered uh, throughout the 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 development. Now, unless you're going to build apartments in in midair and build the other ones around it, I don't know how you could do that considering what they're doing. The I've been watching it go up brick by brick, and it is ugly. It is ugly. And, and, you know, from every aspect of ridiculous um, factory style roof roofing as like an aesthetic flourish to completely u- losing, uh, having a terrible aspect and losing the view that everybody could enjoy, including the people living there to the Wellington Monument. Um, and, and it's so disheartening because you do like I obviously Ireland is an issue with design in general. Um but we have done things properly, like let's say Herbert Sims developments, although they're quite maligned, but that's only due to the poor upkeep. Um, but aesthetically, there's something that people can enjoy. And housing isn't just about the people who live in it. Obviously, that's the main priority, but it's about the urban areas that we we have to look at. And we now have to walk around the capital of the country looking at these torrid, turgid um stupid uh, blocks of of hotels and purpose-built student accommodation um how can we develop a a something a, a beauty a beauty clause in a, in our policy well, the first thing is we have to start taking architecture seriously um i mean one of the reasons why i have the corbusier building on my my screen grab here is to remind people that public housing should be the best housing now, when this building was built, it was pretty controversial. It was the first large concrete slab building of its type in France. Um, and, and while it is loved by architects and, and there are plenty of gentrifiers who now live in there, you know, it, it didn't necessarily appeal to everybody's aesthetic tastes. But for example, when I published Home, uh, mm. I really wanted to ensure that the image on the front cover represented public housing that was the best housing. Uh, and I found a really wonderful uh, social housing development in the east of the Netherlands called Hatter Tower. I interviewed the architect at the time. And when I was writing the book, I really wanted to interview a residence because for me, it's not about what you or I think of the building when we're walking past it to wherever we live. Okay. For me, the ultimate test of public housing is the opinion of the people who live in that housing. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to get to interview a resident, but I kept trying. So two years after I published the book, I had this wonderful interview. It was last year with this retired bus driver who lives in, in this 13-story tower block in, in the Netherlands. And, you know, my questions were very simple, right? It's like, why did you move in? What do you think of it? Um, uh, uh, would you live anywhere else? Uh, how's it managed? How's it maintained? And it's a very unique building. It's 13 stories. It has, uh, uh, every apartment has dual aspect balconies. It has spectacular views. It has an energy efficiency rating to die for. Its design is specifically meant to integrate with a local woodland. So these aluminium beautifully shaped balconies are perforated with the patterns of leaves, um, which you know just gives it a beautiful aesthetic effect. It is beautifully wood paneled. It has lovely gardens. And like the guy was, was you know, kind of a regular working class uh, bus driver, had a, a, a two-story kind of home in another district. Uh, uh, while he was still working as a bus driver, uh, his uh, wife uh, took very ill and was wheelchair bound and they had to move somewhere else. And, 
he'd always driven past this building as was been built and was really intrigued by it. It was in a neighbourhood that was a little bit more run down, would have had a little bit more crime, more lower income uh, immigrant communities. But he was drawn to it, right, just as a regular citizen of his city. Uh, uh, checked it out uh, and was able to move in because it's a mixture of social and, and affordable apartments. Like it's 90 square metres for a two-bedroom apartment with a beautiful balcony that, as happens, looks right into the sports stadium of, of his favourite soccer team, right? A <laughs> um, couple of years later, his wife passes away uh, and the rent is a little bit more expensive than he would like to be paying, but he wouldn't for the life of him move out. He says he likes it so much that it's made not only him, but then people who live in that neighbourhood proud to be in that neighbourhood. And in surveys of the neighbourhood, the building of Hatter Tower was seen as a turning point in, in people gaining pride in their own sense of community. So not something coming in from outside to gentrify, but people getting something of worth in their own area. We do have some examples of that. Um, so not everything is bad on on, on our domestic front. Dunley Rotdown County Council, for example. Yeah, there's some really, really beautiful public housing. Yeah. yeah, off the main street. If, if you're ever coming off Colbert Station in Limerick, just walk across uh, to the left. There was an old military shirt factory there. That's a really one, in my view, a really wonderful social housing development. Some of the residents will tell you there are some teething problems and snagging issues that haven't been resolved, which goes back to the issue around Sims, which is it's not just that you have to build it right. You have to maintain it properly mm-hmm. uh, over time. So I suppose the couple of things we need to do is, first of all, uh, there is a much delayed state architecture policy that has yet to be published. And we need that to be published. And it needs to be a serious document. But we also need politicians uh, uh, and public officials beyond architects and designers to be interested in architecture. I mean, I, I've just completed another book on Bussaris and Ars Victermina. Um, hopefully it will come out before the end of this year. And it's it's a coffee table book of photographs and text. And what was really interesting when I was researching that was back in the 1930s and early 40s, and that was a period of very significant new public building, schools, VCs, hospitals, public housing. Uh, politicians took architecture seriously, public architecture. They were thinking about what does this say about how we are, are serving the citizens? What does this say about this newly independent free state? What does this say about who we are and how we want to present ourselves to the to the world? And we have to get back to that idea that public architecture is important. I'm not so sure about a beauty clause because what I think is beautiful and what you think are beautiful. I know, I know. Things. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of broadly talking about how do we incorporate aesthetics into the, the, po- the your, policy. Your principle is really important, right? For example, Dublin City Council are going to deliver a major public housing project in St. Michael's Estate, uh, a, a long fought battle by the community, supported by lots of politicians, myself included, for 100% public housing. That building needs to contribute to the urban fabric of that area. Just the, the, the physicality of it, the aesthetics of it, have to improve the quality of people's lives, as well as it having sufficient dual aspects, sufficient space, sufficient amenity. So for me, it's a kind of that whole idea of, of you know, go to Waterford and look at the Museum of Antiquities that Waterford City Council built some years ago. An incredible piece of public architecture, real risk-taking by the county architect and the city manager. Go to Carlo uh, and look at the, you know, the Carlo... Uh, um, uh, Institute of Art and Museum, that beautiful kind of cube, uh, uh, white uh, uh, lit building. Again, really positive, innovative public architecture. You know, I, I, the reason I mentioned Inchicore is I live in Clodagh and I get the bus into, into town. But, you know, I pass, for example, at the Inchicore Technical College. Mm-hmm. Right? People don't appreciate how incredible that building was as a piece of modernist architecture. 
or the Carnegie Library, just a little bit beside it yeah. in an earlier period of more arts and crafts, almost art deco architecture. So there's little glimpses of that in our past and our present. My strong view is every cent of public money spent on public building should be built not only for a, a utilitarian purpose, but a, pu- a bigger public purpose. Um, and that absolutely includes its impact on the urban fabric, on urban design, and people's sense of well-being in their city because they have good stuff to look at. Mm. Right? One of the things I say that's really remarkable about Bosaris and both Michael Scott and his ha- talented team of architects and designers and Percy Reynolds, the head of CIE who drove uh, the project, is that they wanted regular people to have good stuff. They wanted them to have a big, bright comfortable bus station with rooftop views of the city and a restaurant and a 24-hour newsreel. And, you know, why shouldn't ordinary people have the very best of things? And not as a commercial product you buy, as a public good in and of itself. So I'm I'm 100% with you. Um, And there's some really good work being done by people like Emmett Scanlon and others to try and promote that idea of public architecture and the public purpose of architecture. Really interesting things happening in Britain in terms of new social housing builds. Uh, uh, there's some really lovely things happening in the continent and we just need more and more of that and very often not only is it better but it's cheaper more energy efficient uh, and proved to be much more popular so it's a, it's a win-win in all cases yeah and lasts longer um, I mean I think that you know we're, we're not short of world-class architects it's just that most of them are doing their large large-scale work outside of Ireland I mean when you look at Yvonne Farrell and Shelley McNamara how amazing would, would it be for those for Grafton architects to actually be be building amazing public housing um, in this country. Um, but also, can I, make, can I make this one point? Because this yeah. is something uh, uh, that's very significant. The, the team of people who produced Bussaris, for example, or Le Corbusier when he did the building that's in the screen grab behind me, they were very young. Um, it is virtually impossible for a young, talented, experimental, innovative architect get a, to get a single piece of public work these days. So in fact, what we really need, and this is no disrespect to Grafton Architects because their stuff is absolutely wonderful, we need the young architects emerging who are the Grafton Architects of the future to be given the opportunity, particularly through, for example, public competitions, to say, okay, so we have a piece of land here in Temple Bar. It's a very small, awkward site. We want to have a competition uh, to the best and brightest young men and women in our country uh, and to say, how can we build high-density, good quality, uh, energy-efficient homes that add to the aesthetic well-being and you know urban fabric of that area. Go and show us what you're made of, right? And then to invite those submissions and through some public selection process, pick out the best ones and then give those young architects the opportunity to work alongside more experienced architects in DCC to drive the innovation of the future. You look at some of the greatest architects of the 20th century, when they won their great competitions, right? So when they won their great awards, they were for works at an earlier stage of their career when they were given the opportunity to experiment, to invent, uh, and to kind of push the boundaries of, of their profession. Uh, and our problem is public procurement, uh, as Emmett and others will, will rightly tell you when you're talking to them, it, it inhibits all of that. So, so let's have the young architects of the future designing the best quality public buildings, particularly public housing, uh, when that ha- housing starts to get built in earnest uh, in the near future. Finally, Owen, thanks so much for your for your time on this. Um, really appreciate it. But I mean, ob- there are obvious political benefits to this for uh, for you writing this book. I mean, last election, everyone was. To- I mean, you must have felt like you were very, very grateful for having written home because every single person was saying, "Well, Owen O'Brien, he wrote the book about the public house." You know, so 
this you must be thinking about that as well in terms of how this book serves you and how it serves Sinn Féin. Um, presumably everybody who's ever lived in a defective uh, build will will buy it and read it and they're probably and they're going to vote for Sinn Féin on that basis, on one of those bases. Um, is that something that you think about in terms of when you're plotting uh, the next or, you know, your sub- subsequent books, how they're going to serve you politically? Genuinely, it's not. Um, and, I, and I think if that's the way people thought, then all politicians would be writing books all the time. And of course, <laughs> I suppose not, that's true as well. One of our problems in this society is we have far too far, far too few politicians who, who do that. Look, this is my fourth book. Um, and part of that is because my actual ambition in, in life is to be a writer, not to be a politician. Um, so writing is something I like to do. But for me, writing is about wanting to understand things better. So the reason I wrote home was like you and like everybody else, we were living in the middle of a housing crisis. So in my head, I'm going, I want to understand this properly. I want to know what the root of the problem is. I want to listen to and read all of those smart people who have solutions to this problem. And then I want to kind of crystallize that into a piece of work. Um, so for me, learning in the first instance, or sorry, writing in the first instance is about learning so that I'm better equipped to the, do the job that I do. I suppose the other thing is, and this is what I learned from, from home, is being a TD gives you a very privileged platform um, in the sense that uh, if you produce a book of quality, if you go away and do it right, that it's not a party political press release, but you you demonstrate that you have researched, that you have listened, that you have learned, uh, and that you are genuinely trying to find ways of resolving problems. Um, um, that means that, you know, you're playing a part in highlighting those solutions. So I, I think... You know, sometimes our political system gets criticised because it's too much parish pump. Uh, constituency politics is really important. I'm involved in it as much as any other party. And it gives you a really good kind of read of what's going on on the ground. So there's nothing wrong with that. What we need more of is for politicians to take the stuff they experience on the ground in the constituency, bring it into the Oireachtas, and get very serious about the, the business of policy formation, legislation, and reform. And therefore, in other jurisdictions, it's not so unusual for politicians who are serious about legislative and policy and, and social economic reform to produce works uh, like these. Um, uh, so therefore, I suppose it's, this is me doing my job. I'm very well paid uh, as a TD. Um, it's an enormous honor for people to put their trust in you. And I take that very seriously. And therefore, if contributing to the public debate and contributing to resolving the problems is assisted by producing these books, I'm going to keep doing it. Does that mean I'll get more people to vote for me? I hope so, uh, because I'm absolutely of the view uh, that the two parties who have been uh, rotating government for the last century uh, are not fit to govern this state. Uh, and until we have something else, and that's something else uh, I'd like to see uh, led by Sinn Féin, but involving a much broader coalition of forces. Until we have that, we're going to be talking about these problems. So I'm in the business of getting votes, but not because I want to be a TD. Uh, I want to contribute to delivering real social, economic, political and cultural change. And my particular portfolio is housing planning and, and local government. Uh, so there are a few more books in the pipeline and I'll tell you all about those uh, at a later stage. Nono Bryn, Sinn Féin TD on his new book, Defects, Living with the Legacy of the Celtic Tiger. Thank you so much um, for taking the time to chat to us. Thanks for having me, Una.